Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you and we ask once again that you would take our time that we have dedicated to study of your word and allow us to do that very thing. Lord, help us to keep in mind that you have applications and things that will encourage us in how to live for you today and tomorrow. Guide and direct all of our time that you may be glorified in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Take your Bibles if you would and let's go to the book of Revelation once again. Uh, he's reviewing, we've been, this is our 32nd lesson in the book of Revelation, and really all we have done is kind of scratch the surface, it seems. And uh, uh, again, uh, the scope, the, the direction that I'm heading in is trying to uh, lay down the scope and sequence, the actual events that are being spoken of in the book. And then we want to go back and try to put this into a time frame and, and to uh, see if we can uh, uh, get a better understanding of this book. Now, again, we are in the middle of the second pause of the book uh, of Revelation. And uh, we're not going to pick up the action again until we get all the way down to verse 14. I, I have no hope of reaching that tonight. And, uh, and then we'll be back into the pause again way up uh, until uh, we get to uh, chapters uh, 17, I mean six, 15 and 16. Uh, then we'll get back into the action of the book. But what is being done here is God is giving us information that we are going to have to have to understand. John is to prophesy. Chapter 10, God's word, sweet as honey as we take it in. But as we contemplate God's judgment, God's holiness, our failures there, uh, and the people that will not accept the testimony of Christ, there is a bitterness there to the Word of God, but we just keep in the Word. Amen? And we got chapter 11 here, and it says, And there was given me a reed. Like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise, and measure the temple of God, and the altar, and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple, leave out, and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. Now we're going to stop reading right there. Um, it's real easy to skip over these two verses because everybody wants to get to verse 3. And I'll give power unto my two witnesses. And of course, we all know that the two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. And no, we know no such thing and neither does anybody who says they do. Uh, no one knows anything about who these two witnesses are. Other than the Bible does give us some clues. And, and one of the things that I want us to do as we go through these verses is exercise some of the rules and some of the things that we've been talking about on Sunday nights on how to understand God's word. Now, 
John is given a reed. It says, like unto a rod. That means that it was a sturdy measuring stick. Now, most of you, how many of you have ever tried to measure something and you cut it twice and it was still too short and all that good stuff? Uh, you know, we have these tape measures and we roll them out and we measure everything. And, and uh, I've got a, a 16 foot and a 25 foot and a 30 foot and a 35 foot. And then if that doesn't work, we got a 100 foot. Uh, and uh, that one's on a big reel because measuring things is important. Ladies, how many of you cook without measuring anything? Yeah, kind of, sort of. Hey, a pinch is a real measurement. Look it up in the recipes. When you just put in so much of something, let me ask you a question. How come it tastes the same or nearly the same every time? Ah, it's because you've measured it even though you're not using a standard measure. Amen? Uh, you Measuring is important. And John is given this reed like unto a rod. It's of a thicker diameter than a normal reed uh, would be. And he is told to get up and to measure three things. He's told to measure the temple of God the altar, and them that worship therein. Then he's told not to measure something. But the court which was without the temple, leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. Now, as we're going to explore these two verses, we need to understand a few things. We need to understand that John is being given a read by the angel. We believe the mighty angel in verse in, in chapter 10 is the same angel. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is told to measure some things. But the court without is given to the Gentiles. Now, how many of you out there are Gentiles? You're not Jewish in heritage. That is the standard definition of the word Gentiles. But see, in the early church and in the Old Testament, anybody who was not a Jew was a Gentile. And the Jews and the Gentiles met in the same church and worshiped Christ the same way. Ephesians 4, that is the mystery of Christ. How that we as non-Jewish people could be saved without first becoming Jews. If you lived in the Old Testament, you had to become a Jew first in order to worship the God of the Bible. We're all still in agreement. We take that definition and we put it in this passage and we have these Jews, these Gentiles treading under the city of God, the city of Jerusalem. Does that sound like the servants of Christ treading under the city of Jerusalem, having a false dominion? No. Uh, 
The Gentiles here would be in the classic definition, unsaved, unregenerate people. So we have a claim to John not to measure the court outside because that's given unto the Gentiles and they're going to tread under the city 40 and 2 months. Now, this is going to be a recurring time period. You're going to see 40 and 2 months, a time, times, and half a time, and 1,260 days. All three of those time designations refer to the um, to one half of the seven-year tribulation period. Now, which 40 and two months are the Gentiles going to tread under the city of Jerusalem? If we go to the Olivet Discourse, if we go to uh, the book of Daniel, we find out the covenant of the king that shall come is going to be transgressed or broken in the middle of the week. And so we have tribulation, we have the middle of the tribulation, then we have great tribulation. Most of the book of Revelation deals with that last three and a half year period, the time of great tribulation. And so it would make sense that the temple has been desecrated and we'll try to get the time period in, it belongs to the Gentiles. Now, the reason why we're starting here in verse 2 is because we want to set, set something for understanding verse 1. The measuring has to do with service, has to do with the usage. Every time you get measurements for the temple, measurements for the altar, what's the next thing that comes? Using it. To worship God. Uh, look at in the book of Exodus 27. You build that altar. The measurements are given. Then it's how to use it. Amen. Ezekiel. The temple that has not yet been built. We have never seen a temple. The description of Ezekiel's. It's most fantastic to you and I. Uh, it's an incredible temple. In fact, it was so the measurements and things of that temple were so dynamic and so unusual that many people said there's no way that this building could exist except God build it because it's bigger at the top than it is at the bottom. But we've built buildings like that today. And so the, uh, the understanding here is measurement has to do with service and usage. The time of the Gentiles is given for 40 and two months to tread under the city of Jerusalem. But the court is not measured. And so we're still waiting for that time period. Now let's go back to measuring the temple here. He's to measure the temple of God. Now let's go uh, just... Uh, uh, catch a little bit in Ezekiel. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 40. And the last eight chapters of, of the book of Ezekiel are given to this temple. 
and how it is to be used. In verse 40 of the book of Ezekiel, chapter verse 1, it says, In the five and twentieth year of our captivity, in the beginning of the year, in the tenth day of the month, in the fourteenth year, after that the city was smitten, in the selfsame day the hand of the Lord was upon me and brought me thither. And in the visions of God brought he me into the land of Israel and set me upon a very high mountain, by which was as a frame of a city on the south. And he brought me thither, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of brass, with a line of flax in his hand and a measuring reed, and he stood in the gate. And he said unto me, Son of man, behold with thine eyes, and hear with thine ears, and set thine heart upon all that I shall show thee for to the intent that I may show them unto thee. Art thou brought hither, declare all that thou seest to the house of Israel. And then he starts measuring the temple. And we're not going to take time to read all of the measurements of the temple, but there are given the the dimensions of the building, the little chambers that sit on the side of the building, the court, the place of the sacrifice. We get to chapter 43, and Ezekiel is going to measure uh, the altar. And it's interesting here in the book of Revelation, John's given the reed. He's told the to measure. But I want to ask you a question. Where are the measurements? Uh, they're not recorded. Now, if God told John to measure it, he did. But just like the seven thunders that uttered their voices in verse 10, he didn't write the measurements down. So we don't know what they are. But it is interesting. The last thing he is supposed to measure is he is to measure the temple, he is to measure the altar, And he is to measure them that worship therein. I want to challenge you. That ought to happen every time you walk through those doors. When we measure something, we put the standard against what we are measuring. You ought to be able to take one tape measure and measure a piece of wood and another tape measure, even of a different brand and make. Of course, they're all made in China. But uh, you ought to be able to measure those and cut whatever it is and take it back to where you're placing it and it ought to fit. We have a Bureau of Standards and Measurements in Washington, D.C., You know what they have to do every once in a while? They have to replace the weights. Uh, Because the weights that they are using, just because they sit there in those boxes and things, I, I don't know exactly, somebody told me this a while back, maybe they were just pulling my leg, but just by the sake of years that they sit there, their mass changes just the teeniest little tiny bit. 
And so they have to constantly make sure that those weights are exact, that an inch is an inch. And uh, by the way, uh, how many of you remember way back when they said the metric system will be the only system of measurement in the United States? How many of you remember that? My dad was a machinist. And I came home telling him all about kilometers and, and cubic centimeters. And he said, America will never go to the metric system completely. I said, but that's not what my teacher... He said, I don't care what your teacher said. He said, I'm a tool and die maker. And he said, we would have to rebuild this entire country to do away with the English system. And guess what? Teacher was wrong, my dad was right, huh? How many of you have ever tried to convert between millimeters and inches? And I mean, oh my, that drives you crazy. Drive to Canada, everything's in kilometers. Uh, I like kilometers, actually. It says, you know, Montreal is, is uh, what was it, 62 kilometers when we crossed the border and we're there in 40 minutes. I mean, I, I like that. Because the speed limit's 120. I kind of like that too. Um, you're not going any faster. It just feels better. Um, now we've had a little fun. But what is happening here is God is asking John to place his standard. He gets the measuring stick from Jesus from the angel, and he is to measure them that worship in this temple. Now, there's only one way to worship God. Is that not the theme of the Bible from beginning to end? Amen? Would you agree with me on that? Because if you don't, we've got to start all over again, way back at the beginning. Uh, there's only one way to worship God. Now, I'm glad that you and I don't have to do what Abraham did. When Abraham worshipped God, he would pick a spot, and he would get out his whatever they had for a shovel in those days, and dig up a mound of earth and build it, or just if there was a lot of loose rocks in the area, he would pick up rocks and build a pile of rocks. He was not allowed to chisel or fit those rocks together. And he would offer a sacrifice on that pile of dirt or that pile of rocks to God. The altar of the Lord was different. How many of you remember the story of Gideon from the book of Judges? Gideon tore down the grove, the trees that were planted around the altar... And it says there was an altar of the Lord planted there. The altars of the, uh, of the devil, of the false worship, have always been beautiful things. Something to behold. People have often said, but you got a beautiful building here, but uh, where are the saints? Um, you don't have pictures of the apostles in the stained glass windows? No, this was a synagogue. 
Don't think they were too hep on Peter, James, and John and the rest of those guys. But I always like to tell people our church is not about the symbolism. God's altar is always a simple thing. It was made to be used. And our worship is made to be lived. And so John is doing all of this measuring. And what we have here is we have a contrast between those that worship in the temple and the Gentiles who are going to tread underfoot the city of Jerusalem. Now, this is one of the keys to understanding your entire Bible. If the Gentiles are going to tread underfoot and have a false dominion or an ungodly dominion over the city of Jerusalem for 42 months in the tribulation period, what does that mean is going to happen before that time? In order for the Gentiles to take possession and to take dominion, that means that the Jewish people have to have possession and a true dominion over the city before the Gentiles take it away from them. You see how simple that is? And yet, let me tell you something. From 70 AD all the way up until the 1880s, no one ever believed that the Jews would be back in Jerusalem. And when the Jewish state became its own nation in 1948, who had control of Jerusalem? It wasn't the Jews. It was the Arabs. There were wars that were fought. I don't believe it was until 1967 that actually the control of the city of Jerusalem was given back to the Jews. Now, how many of you remember what happened here? This was four or five years ago. They've been doing excavations under the city of Jerusalem. And they started looking for things under there. And the whole Arab world went crazy. They started killing Jewish people and launching rockets and doing all kinds of things. In fact, uh, by the time it was all over, Israeli forces were in Lebanon. Israeli forces had totally dominated the West Bank and, and uh, all of these things. And it was just that far from open war. You see, the Temple Mount itself is still controlled by Arab people. There's a place called the Mosque of Omar or the Dome of the Rock. It was built about 900 A.D. It is like the second or third most holy site in all of Islam. What do you think would happen? They tore that thing down and built a temple there. 
I can't wait. Because if there's, if we understand the Bible correctly, this passage, along with several others, is telling us there's going to be a temple in Jerusalem during the tribulation period. That it's going to be built there. And let me tell you something, a fellow named Grant Jeffries several years ago uh, went through and he claims that he found something that none of the Jewish people have ever found and nobody ever knew but him that the mosque uh, that is up there can actually stay situated on the Temple Mount and they could build the temple in a different place because the mosque is, does not sit where the temple built, was built. Now, that's pretty interesting information. The only problem is there's not a Jew in the world that believes that. Uh, nor is there any Jewish person who truly wants to worship the God of the Bible. Many of them do, though they're blinded by their religion and their traditions to not accept what is in the New Testament. They don't want a mosque desecrating the temple site. In fact, they've uncovered the stone that was there when the Apostle Paul was alive. And it basically had an inscription in Hebrew and in Roman, the Roman language and in Aramaic and several different languages of the area. If you're not a Jew, you step over this stone, you're dead. Because you were not to desecrate the temple. Now, that's the law. They didn't give sightseeing tours of the temple. You had to be a Jewish man to enter the main temple court. And if you were going to enter the temple proper, you had to be a priest or a Levite. You had to be in the service of the temple. Now, some people started studying their Bibles and, like I said, in late 1800s, early 1900s, they started coming out with some new ideas that the Jews would get control of the land of Israel. And yet, this passage right here says that the Gentiles are going to have the city for 40 and two months, which would seem, if we go to uh, Matthew chapter 24... This is called the Olivet Discourse. And, of course, there's a lot of discourse about the discourse. A lot of dissension about this. But uh, let's uh, go down to verse 15. Actually, let's, um, let's look at uh, verse 5. And we'll just, we're not going to read every verse, but it says, For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nations shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines, and pestilence, and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. How many of you remember the four horsemen? The first horseman 
a bow, no arrows, and he went forth conquering to conquer. The second horse was red. He was to take peace from the earth. Does that sound like a nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom? See, many people have read this and they tried to make this talk about World War I and World War II. The only problem was people read this a hundred years before them and they said, oh, this is talking about uh, this war and that war, the Crimean War. And then they said a hundred years before that. And then, I mean, all the way through history. I mean, ever since these words have been spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ, people have tried to substitute battles but the horsemen do not show up until day one of the tribulation period. Right here we have a correlation. We have nation rising against nation. These are the beginning of sorrows. The next horse is uh, the black horse, which is famine. And then you have death and hell. Uh, and it talks about the death toll. It says, these are the beginning of sorrows. And then we have the Christians being persecuted. And it says, and many shall be offended and shall betray one another, and many false prophets shall rise. And we get to verse 13. But he that shall endure until the end, the same shall be saved. Now, people like to jump through all kinds of hoops when they get to verse 13. They like to say, see, during the tribulation period, which we're definitely there, we've got the four horsemen before. We've got the abomination of desolation coming up, which seems to be the midpoint. If you're going to be saved during the tribulation period, I've heard preachers say this, you're going to be saved by works. Now, let me ask you a question. Has anyone at any time ever been saved by works? Absolutely not. But the true Christians, the true believers in Christ, will endure to the end because Christ is working in them. Amen? And so we do not have Anytime you hear somebody talking about different kinds of salvation, you better be careful. There's only one kind of salvation. John is given the reed to measure them that worship therein. Now, faith in God is always in agreement with the revelation of God. Adam and Eve watched God kill those animals and he made coats to cover them for sacrifice. Abel saw that and he took a blood sacrifice. That's why God accepted it and refused Cain's. Amen? Noah, what did he do because of faith? Build an ark. Amen? God said build an ark, gave him the dimensions. We are to be obedient to the word of God. Now, the idea that true believers in Jesus Christ, that's what they're counted for in Revelation chapter 11, are going to worship at a temple in Jerusalem is something very foreign to this thing we call, and the Bible calls the church, is it not? 
That's one of the reasons why we believe the church is taken out at the beginning is because would you and I go to Jerusalem and offer sacrifices at the temple? Because Jesus is our sacrifice, amen? And the Bible is very clear in the millennial kingdom that the Jewish people will be offering sacrifices in the temple. And that the temple in the New Jerusalem will accept sacrifices. So we're going to see these things. And this is one of the reasons why some Bible scholars and people who are trying to explain this says, well, what God's going to do is he's going to suspend the dispensation of grace and reinstate the dispensational law. Now, I want to be real careful about that. Because there was a big change between law and grace. Amen. And there's going to be a big change when we get to the tribulation period. There's no question about it. But to go so far as to say God suspends grace and reinstates law, I don't know that I can go there. I don't know that we can answer all the questions. Really, when you pick a system of eschatological thought, and I didn't say that right, eschatology, yes, eschatological thought, there we go. What you have to do is you have to pick the one with the least odious problems because we can't understand everything that's going to happen. It'll make a lot more sense when we get to Revelation chapter 20 in reality and we can look back and see how it all fell together, how it all worked together. But I do want you to understand before we finish here that John has God's measuring stick. And God's obedience is always connected to God's word. And if you don't make that connection, then the two witnesses become these very strange guys that just show up and do very strange things. And that's not God's intention at all. So we get down here to verse 15, and it says, when ye, when ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Now look at verse 16. It's kind of interesting. Verse 15 says, when ye therefore shall see. Verse 16 says, then let them which be in Jerusalem flee into the mountains. And let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything hither. And woe unto them that are with child in verse 19. And we come to verse 21. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time. No, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, these days shall be shortened. Now, here's what we have going. Is we have this abomination of desolation. That is, as far as we can understand, when this man called the Antichrist, the beast, truly identifies himself as Satan incarnate and goes into the temple in Jerusalem 
and sits upon the mercy seat in the temple and claims to be the God of the Bible. Now, as far as we understand, this act is going to be the catalyst for causing those among Israel who believe in God and will believe in God to recognize that the Antichrist is the imposter and that Jesus Christ of the Bible is the only true Christ, the only true Messiah. You know, people come up with all kinds of ideas for who this Antichrist is. And let me, let me tell you something. He's got to pass himself off as the Messiah of the Jews. Uh, that means there's some people that just aren't qualified. Bill Clinton's one of them. Amen. Uh, Obama's another one. Uh, somebody said, it's John F. Kennedy come back from the dead. Can't somebody please just let that man lie in his grave? Amen. He's been there since 1963, and he will stay there till Judgment Day. Just leave him alone, all right? Uh, it's amazing all the crazy ideas that people come up with. But the idea of the abomination of desolation is the desecration of the temple. It connects with the treading under the feet of the city of Jerusalem, I believe. And so we have these things all coming together. The temple is going to be polluted, desecrated, and yet, we're just going to end with a teaser. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 12. I mean 11, I'm sorry. The counterweight or the counterstroke that appears that God is going to use as the temple is desecrated. Remember, in the Old Testament... Once the temple was built, what did God say? My eyes are always going to be on this city. They're always going to be on this building. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, God says, I'll turn my curse into a blessing. That's talking about Solomon's temple. Now, Verse 3, and I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand, two hundred, and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. Now, we have the temple set up as the center. That was all through from the day of Solomon until Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple because of God's judgment. The temple was rebuilt by Zerubbabel. He's a very important person because, Lord willing, next week that's who we're going to study. He, uh, Zechariah is given a vision in Zechariah chapter 4. And these two olive branches... Uh, the, it says here, the two olive trees 
the candlesticks. Now, here's just where we're going to end. The, the preaching, the prophesying of these two witnesses is the counterbalance to the desecration of the temple in the city of Jerusalem. Instead of the temple being the center of the propagation of God's word, we now have these two witnesses. And by the way, they're represented as being candlesticks. Now, where do you remember candlesticks from? Chapter 1. The candlesticks were how many in number? Does anybody remember? Seven. And they were in the hand of Jesus Christ. They were his churches. Now, does that mean five churches are dead and only two candlesticks are still around? Or does it mean that God is using a different method to get his word to the world than the church? I believe that is the simplest understanding. We have two candlesticks here, which we'll study Zechariah next time, are two individuals. They're the anointed ones. They're going to prophesy. And we'll read through this passage. And, and it talks about these two men as individuals, as preaching uh, to the time then. And by the way, what is the candlestick? How many remember from our study of the tabernacle? The candlestick is a picture of Jesus Christ. Well, then why is it the church in Revelation chapter 1? Well, how does the message of Jesus Christ, the light of Christ, get to the world? Through the church. Well, then why do we have two candlesticks here and the seven candlesticks are not even mentioned? Well, this is one of the reasons, not the only one, that we believe the church is removed at the beginning of the tribulation period and God is doing something very different. And these two, as we believe they are individuals, are responsible for getting the words of God to the world in which they live. And they will have special powers that are just absolutely uh, beyond human comprehension. Why doesn't God do that today, somebody says. You know, if somebody just showed up and started zapping people and, and, blah, and, and talking and they disappear and, and, and doing all these signs and wonders... Hey, uh, let me ask you a question. Can you get any more signs and wonders than Oral Roberts? I mean, that guy sneezed on a hanky and said, if you'll just take it, you'll get a blessing by buying a hanky that I've touched and breathed on. I mean, come on. Let's get away from this stuff. God always uses signs and wonders when he's dealing with Israel. When he's dealing with his church, how does he deal with his church? Through the word. The candlestick is Jesus Christ. He is the light to the Jew, 
to the Gentile believer and to the unsaved world, he is still the light. That way they are without excuse. Amen? And what happens? Men love darkness rather than light? How many of you have been deep in sleep and somebody comes and just flips on the light? I mean, that is painful, is it not? Well, you wonder why you're passing out tracks and somebody goes, How many of you have had that happen? You, you, You make the connection there. You just flipped on the searchlight of God's word. You scared them to death. Now, right now, God wants the church to be the candlestick. And if we disobey, what does he do? If you're not going to take my light, you're not going to have any light. You think there might be a connection between measuring the believers and the standard of God's holiness? I think there is. Now, I hope I haven't confused you more than we've started here. This is just one of those hubs. It connects to everything. And if we miss what we get in these two verses here, our understanding of the rest of the book of Revelation is going to be cardinally, cardinally different. It's, it's going to be very, very different, and you cannot, you, you cannot just go through and play havoc with the words. He's telling us of events that happened during the tribulation. If the Gentiles, unsaved people, are going to take over Jerusalem for 40 and two months, well, guess what? That means the Jews have to be in control before then. If they're measuring the temple, guess what? That means the temple is in functioning service. The temple is working. And all of a sudden, it's going to stop working because the Gentiles, the people of the Antichrist, are going to tread underfoot the city of Jerusalem for 40 and two months. The balance or the counterbalance, we might say, to the end of the temple being used is these two witnesses who are called God's candlesticks. And we'll, we'll try to pick up the pieces there next Thursday night and keep moving. But what we're trying to do is allow God's word to be its own commentary and help us see and understand And by the way, uh, God had to give John a reed to measure. But we have one right here. Don't measure yourself with another person in the church. Don't measure yourself by what you see in other people's lives. You measure yourself by God's standard, not anybody else's. And you know what happens when we do that? We're able to put up with each other's failures and still serve God. Because when I see your failures and you see my failures, guess what the first thing we want to do is? You got to get that straightened out. Right? But when I'm looking at the standard of God's holiness, whose failures do I see? Mine.
If you're looking at the same measuring stick, whose failures do you see? Yours. And now what do we become? We become two servants of Christ who are struggling to measure up. And that's the ministry of the church. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for what is in your word, and we ask that you would give us insight into this passage and help us. Lord, to take a warning here, you're interested in measuring your church. You're interested in measuring everything. The dimensions are recorded all through the scriptures. Lord, how woefully short do we come up when we're measured by the Holy God. Lord, let us keep our eyes upon you and upon your standard that we may love one another and serve you until the day Jesus comes for us. In your name we pray. Before we finish that prayer, just have the pianist play. If you need to slip out and spend...